Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Nir Eyal. Uh, Nir, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Eric. Great to be here. So, Nir, it's great to have you back on the podcast. I think we did an episode a, a, a long time ago when you wrote Hooked uh, with uh, Ryan Hoover, of course, the uh, founder of Product Hunt. Uh, and it's, uh, it's great to have you back for your new book, uh, Indistractable. Uh, so, uh, why this book? Why Indistractable? And how do you make sense of it in, in context of, of Hooked? Yeah, so I think what we see these days is that uh, we all appreciate how distracting the world is potentially. And so I think what we need is an answer for how do we do what we say we're going to do. I think that this is the critical skill. I, th- I call it the skill of the century, that uh, the skill of the century will be the ability to do what you say you're going to do, to live with personal integrity. And so after writing Hooked and understanding so much about how to build habit-forming products, I wanted to expose the Achilles heel of how to manage distraction of all sorts, not just tech distraction. I think we hear a lot about uh, uh, tech distraction these days, but it's important to realize that distraction is not a new problem, that people have been struggling with distraction at least since the time of Plato. He talked about it 2,500 years ago. Seneca talked about it. And so it's definitely not a new problem. I do think, though, however, that if you are looking for distraction, then it is easier than ever to find that because technology is built to be so pervasive and so persuasive uh, that if you're looking for it, clearly it's, it's you know, within a, a reach into your pocket on your s- a smartphone at any time. And so this is really a critical skill, whether it comes to uh, having the kind of relationships we want, whether it's about having the kind of health and, and uh, uh, workout routines we desire or the kind of investment into our bodies, into our minds, uh, all require us to have a lot of focus. And of course, when it comes to the workplace, we know that uh, you know, the problem these days in the modern American workplace is not that people don't know what to do, right? We, we have up to the gills uh, been fed this narrative that, oh, if we just know our strategy, if we just know our objectives, if we just know our, our mission, then we'll do the right stuff. Well, that's clearly not true. How many of us go through life day after day knowing exactly what to do? We just don't do it. Right? We don't work out when we say we will. We don't uh, work on that big project we say we will. We get distracted by one thing or another, and we don't do what we say we're going to do. And so that's what Indistractable is all about, is how do we live with personal integrity? Totally. And because you're an investor and, and uh, builder of startups as well, you appreciate this question. What was the competitive landscape uh, for, for the topic before you, you came in and wrote the book? How did, how did you make sense of how you wanted to differentiate between uh, uh, everything that was, that was out there before, before you wrote this? Yeah. So, you know, everything that I read about this, this problem previous to writing this book, and look, I didn't set out to write a book. I, I set out to solve my own problem. Uh, I remember the, the, the reason I decided to reevaluate my own relationship with distraction was I was with my daughter one afternoon and we had this beautiful day planned and uh, we had this book of activities that daddies and daughters could do together. And one of the questions in this book was to ask each other this question that if you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? And I remember the question verbatim, but I can't tell you what my daughter said. Uh, Because in that moment, I looked at my phone and I decided that whatever was on my device was more important than she was. And she got the message and she left the room and she decided to go play with some toy outside. 
And that's when I really decided I need to reevaluate my relationship with, with uh, these distractions. And my knee-jerk reaction was to blame the tech. And we hear this repeated ad nauseum these days in the media that it's all about the tech. And I, I kind of fell for that too. And, and I read every book on the topic. I read everything about digital detoxes and, and, and you know, getting rid of the technology and just stop using the tech. And it's all Facebook's fault. It's all the iPhone's fault. And so I actually tried it. I, I did the digital detox. I did the 30-day plans. Uh, I got rid of my smartphone and I got myself a, a, a flip phone from Alibaba, you know, the kind we used to use in the 1990s. And I got myself a word processor with no internet connection. And I would sit down at my desk and I'd say, okay, now I've, I've got rid of all the apps. I've got rid of all the distracting technology. Now I'm really going to focus. Now that I've solved the problem, I've got rid of the tech. And of course, that didn't solve the problem at all. <laughs> I would still get distracted. I would, you know, look at a book on my bookcase and say, oh, you know, I should probably do some more reading in there. There's probably some good research that I should find out. Or let me just tidy up my workspace. Or let me just take out the trash. And I kept getting distracted despite the fact that I'd removed the technology. And what I discovered was that, you know, all these books today that, that say technology is the problem, they're wrong. They're missing what's really going on. What's really going on is much, much deeper than the surface level analysis of, of too much tech. Too much tech is a symptom. It's not the disease. The disease is what's going on inside of us. And so that's why I wanted to do a scientific exploration in terms of the psychology of distraction. That's what I think has been missing in every other book on this topic. And, and so uh, let's get into it a little bit. What's happening when we are doing work and then we decide to check Twitter or decide to check email or decide to check Facebook? What are we searching for? Or maybe uh, if you could bucket into categories or what are the different types of things we're, we're, we're doing when we do that? Yeah. So a good place to understand, to start to understand distraction is to understand what is the opposite of distraction. The opposite of distraction, most people will say, think about it for a minute, what, what, what's the opposite of distraction? Most people will say it's focus, but I disagree. The opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. So both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull, and they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, -E that spells action. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do, things that you do with intent. Now, the opposite of traction is distraction, anything that pulls you away from what you plan to do, things that you are not doing with intent. So this is really important for two reasons. Number one, anything can be a distraction. So just because you sit down at your desk and you start checking email, that doesn't mean that that's a productive task. Because if you plan to work on that big project, or that thing that you've been putting off, and now you're just checking, checking off that one easy thing on your to-do list, or you're you know, checking email as opposed to doing that big project, that, even though it feels worky, is not work. It's pseudo-work, and it is just as much of a distraction. And I think it's actually a more pernicious form of distraction, because if you're at work and you're, you know, you're playing Candy Crush or checking Facebook, that's clearly what you're not supposed to be doing, right? That's clearly off-base. But that's not the kind of distraction that scares me, because it's so obvious. The kind of distraction that really gets people is the distraction that tricks them into prioritizing the urgent at the expense of the important. That's the really dangerous type of distraction. So anything can be a distraction, and conversely, anything can be a form of traction. So you know, today we hear a lot of people saying, oh, you know, Facebook is melting our brains, and Twitter is hijacking us, and we're all being remote controlled. It's all rubbish. None of it's true. It's not scientifically based. It's all just intended to get you to click on headlines. Uh, and, and if you think about it, it's not the technology that's doing it to us. That's really not the cause of the problem, uh, because I would argue that there's no moral 
uh, hierarchy that says that checking Facebook is somehow inferior to watching a football game. What's the difference? There's no difference. Anything you do with intent when you want to do it based on your values and on your schedule is wonderful. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But you have to define what is traction and what is distraction for your life and for every minute of your day. Okay, so now you have traction, you have distraction. Now we have to ask ourselves, what prompts us towards these two actions, traction or distraction? What prompts us are triggers, and there are two types of triggers. We have external triggers and we have internal triggers. External triggers is what we tend to blame for our distractions. It's the pings, the dings, the rings, all of these things in our outside environment. It can be a colleague tapping you on the shoulder if you work in an open floor plan office and saying, hey, can I just talk to you for a quick sec? All of those things can be external triggers that lead us towards distraction. But in my five years of research and writing this book, I discovered that that is not the most common form of distraction. The most common source of distraction is not what is happening outside of us, but rather it is what is going on within. That whenever we are looking for escape, whenever we get distracted, whenever we do something we don't intend to do, it is always because of one reason. And that one reason is the same reason we do everything and anything. The root of human motivation, you know, many people think that, the, that human motivation is all about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. This is called Freud's pleasure principle. Turns out it's not true. Neurologically, we do not do things because of the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. Neurologically, everything we do, we do for one reason only. And that is the desire to escape discomfort. Everything we do is about the desire to escape discomfort. So what that means, therefore, if all human behavior is prompted by a desire to escape discomfort, what that means, therefore, is that time management is pain management. That we know this to be true physiologically, that if you think about, you know, if you go outside and it's too cold, well, your brain says, this is uncomfortable, put on a jacket. And if you come back inside, your brain says, oh, it's too hot, take it off. Uh, and so those are physiological responses. This is called the homeostatic response. It's pretty pretty obvious, common sense. The same thing holds true to our psychological reactions. So for example, when we're feeling lonely, we check Facebook. When we're uncertain, we Google. When we're bored, we check sports scores. We check uh, Reddit. We check Pinterest. We check the news. Oh my gosh, how often do we check the news, right? How easy is it to worry about somebody else's problems somewhere you know, halfway across the world we can't do anything about as opposed to have to thinking about our own issues? So we have to come to grips with the fact that this is the root cause of distraction, is, are, are these uncomfortable emotional states we call internal triggers. And let me tell you something, no life hack, no guru's techniques, no book about time management you have ever read will work unless you first and foremost understand what is driving you to seek distraction in the first place. So mastering these internal triggers is the first step of four to becoming indistractable. And, and how should we think about willpower in this context? Is it something that is a muscle that we can strengthen? Is it something that we should think about selectively, i.e., you know, eat the small bit of chocolate, but, you know, don't, uh, you know, go, you know, spend the whole day going to, I don't know, uh, the festival or something if you want to get work done? How should we think about willpower? So willpower turns out that, you know, in my research that, that the people who are indistractable, the people who are able to do what they say they're going to do day in and day out, these are not people with a lot of willpower. They are people who have systems in place. Because what we find is that willpower, self-control in the moment, fails. Doesn't work very well. 
that you you know if there, there's a if you wanted to summarize my book in in one mantra, it's that the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. Okay, doing what you say you're going to do, getting distracted, is really a problem of emotional regulation. It's fundamentally that is what procrastination is all about. It's about escaping an uncomfortable sensation by doing something else. And so, if we understand that fact, and we 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 understand that the antidote to that problem of impulsiveness is one thing: it is planning ahead. It's not fighting it in the moment, right? If the cigarette is lit and it's in your hand, you're going to smoke it. If the chocolate cake is on the fork, you're going to eat it. If your cell phone is on your nightstand when you go to sleep, it's going to be the first thing you check in the morning when you wake up before you even kiss your your loved one good morning, because you haven't planned ahead. And there is no distraction. I don't care how powerful the algorithms, I don't care how quote unquote addictive the technology is, there is no distraction we can't overcome and that we are not more powerful than by simply planning ahead. And that is the secret to this, is taking steps today to make sure we don't get distracted tomorrow. I mean, this is, our, this is one of our evolutionary gifts. No animal on the face of the earth can do what we can in terms of our ability to see into the future. We can, I mean, this is the very definition of intelligence. We can plan ahead. And so that's the secret. It's not willpower. And in fact, in my book, I, I turn over a lot of apple carts. That's kind of what I do. That's my, that's my writing niche. I love to turn over apple carts when it comes to uh, 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 popular psychology. And one of the most widely held and incorrect notions out there that really does hurt people is this idea uh, that willpower is a limited resource. You, you, everybody's heard it in one way or the other. Before I wrote this book, I actually used to give in to this, this myth. I would come home from work and say, oh boy, I'm spent. I've, got, you know, I've had a really tough day at work. I've got nothing left. Give me that pint of Ben and Jerry's. I'm going to sit here on the couch. And I'm going to watch Netflix because I'm spent. I've got nothing left, right? Uh, I deserve it. I need to indulge myself, right? Because I've just got, I've got no capability of making good decisions anymore. My willpower is, is, is spent. It's exhausted. And in the psychology community, we call this ego depletion. And there were some studies before that, that found that maybe this effect really does exist, that people really do run out of, of, uh, of willpower like gas in a gas tank, except for the fact that the studies were a little bit fishy. And what we do in the scientific community, we, we replicate these studies. We run them again and again to see if we can get the same results. And it turns out that ego depletion doesn't really exist, that you, the studies could not replicate except... For one, for one group of studies, and these studies were conducted by Carol Dweck at Stanford, and she found that ego depletion actually did exist, that some people really did run out of willpower like gas in a gas tank, and only those people exhibited this, this phenomenon. And those people, I know everybody listening is thinking, oh, that's totally me, I'm in that group. Well, maybe. The one group of people, it wasn't based on sex or, or, or socioeconomic strata, none of that stuff. The only people who were, in fact, uh, suffering from ego depletion. They really did run out of willpower like gas in a gas tank. The only people were the people who believed that willpower was a limited resource. Those were the only people affected by this phenomenon. And so this tells us quite a bit about our self-image and how important it is to shape our self-image in a way that serves us as opposed to us serving our self-image. You know, many of us carry around this baggage, these myths around we are a certain way, we are a certain temperament. My Myers-Briggs says this, or you know, I've always heard that I'm, I have a short attention span, or, oh, my favorite, technology is doing this to me, right? It's hijacking my brain. What am I gonna do about it? I can't, the algorithms have controlled me. Well, that kind of stuff actually makes it true. And so that is really why I'm on this mission to disavow 
these myths out there these days because they really are hurting people. That when we believe we are powerless, it becomes true. It's called learned helplessness. And so I want people to know that they are much more powerful than any of these distractions. Yeah, it is very interesting. There's, there's a broader uh, you know, conversation, uh, broader than the scope of the book of, of um, you know, do you tell people or do you perpetuate the image that um, of agency uh, in, in culture or do you perpetuate the image of, um, I don't want to say victimhood, but uh, hey, it, it, you know, of sympathy. It's, it's not your fault. These, these things are really hard. And, and you see that in a variety of, of, of different issues. And, 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 and um, you know, there's, there's no, you know, in terms of, you know, for example, uh, kids who come from less fortunate backgrounds in terms of, you know, do they feel bad because they're, they're not sort of achieving the American dream. But if, if you don't teach them the American dream, then they don't, um, you don't even have it in the, in the first place in terms of what, what to aspire to. Do we tell people that they have free will or not? That's a different version of, of, of that question. Are, are you firmly in the camp of, of agency, even though it's, it, it might be hard or, or unlikely for, for some people, but just defaulting to that? Well, I, I, don't, I haven't said that it's your fault. I don't think it's your fault. You didn't invent the iPhone. You didn't invent delicious chocolate cake. You didn't invent the Cheeto, right? You didn't invent email. It's not your fault. You didn't, you didn't make these things, but it is your responsibility that uh, you, know, you, can't, you can't control how you feel uh, that, that's not in your control any more than you can control the urge to sneeze, right? That is not controllable. What you can control is what you do with that sensation. So when you experience the internal trigger, do you reach for something to take your mind off of that discomfort? Do you reach for your phone? Do you reach for the bottle? Do you reach for email because it makes you take your mind off of what's really going on and what you need to face right now? Is, is that a, an impulse that you cater to with some kind of harmful distraction? Or can you learn to change that habit to now respond with healthful traction as opposed to distraction? And I argue that, that it isn't your fault, clearly, but how we respond to those internal triggers is where we get the word responsibility from. That is in our control. That is something we can do something about. And uh, so, and these are techniques that anyone of sound body and mind can absolutely use. Now, there are some folks, and I, you know, clearly, there are folks who struggle with the pathology of, of addiction or obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, this book is not written for them. This book is written for everyone who was of sound body and mind, who can, uh, no matter what their socioeconomic status is, can absolutely use these techniques. This is not super complicated stuff. This is about reprogramming our habits so that they serve us as opposed to us serving our habits. Anyone can do it. Totally. And, and uh, you mentioned the, uh, the, the, the first of, of four uh, in, your, in your book. Uh, why don't you uh, unpack the, the rest three? Sure. So the first step is to master the internal triggers. And I tell you all about uh, how to make sure that when you feel those internal triggers, they lead you towards traction rather than distraction. There's some very easy, very practical tools that anyone can use. And by the way, you know, I, I really hate these self-help books that uh, it's, you know, sample size of one. It worked for me. I took a cold shower at 4 a.m. So you should too. No, no, no. The, everything in the book is backed by, by years of research. There's 20 pages of citations in the book. Uh, I, I pull from you know, 20, 30-year-old research, from acceptance and commitment therapy, other techniques that anyone can use that are, are really, really helpful in terms of, of helping us deal with those internal triggers in a healthier manner. So that's the first and more, most important step, and there's some, some very practical uh, techniques you can use. The second step is to make time for traction. Uh, 
Now, we know we talked about traction as the opposite of distraction. Uh, and, and this section of the book is really about how, it, you know, in my research over the past five years, I found that, you know, I talked to so many people who complained about distraction. They complained about how it's so hard to get anything done these days that, you know, their kids want this and their boss wants this. And did you hear what happened on social media? And I just can't get to seem to get everything I need to get done. And, and one of the, the traits I found across the board, 100% of the people I talked to who complained about this problem is that when I asked them to show me their calendars, they all had white space in their day. And when I asked them, what did you plan to do with your time? Well, they said, okay, here's my to-do list. But they, they misunderstood the question. A to-do list is a list of output. And I talk about in the book why to-do lists actually backfire. That, that if you think about it, a to-do list reinforces that you're a loser every single day. Unless you do all the things on your to-do list, every, and this is, this is me, I'm speaking from experience here. Before I started this line of research, I would have a to-do list. I'd accomplish you know, a fraction of what was on my to-do list. Maybe I'd get half of it done. And I would recycle from one day to the next to the next these tasks that I didn't accomplish. And so what, what was the self-image I was reinforcing? That I can do what I say I'm going to do or that I can't, I can't be counted on to do what I say I'm going to do, that I don't live with personal integrity. So day after day, week after week, month after month, I was reinforcing that I can't do what I say I'm going to do. And so that's why to-do lists backfire for the vast majority of people. Instead of using to-do lists, what we need to do instead is to acknowledge this fact that you cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. Let me say that again. You can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So if you have a bunch of white space in your day, you cannot complain that you got distracted. You cannot shake your fist at Facebook or Instagram or email or whatever if you didn't know what those things distracted you from. So you have to plan your time. You know, this is one thing, you know, we, we, we protect our stuff uh, so, so fiercely, right? We have alarms on our cars. We have security systems in our homes. We put our money in banks behind vaults. But when it comes to our time, yeah, sure, come over, steal as much of it as you want. And so you have to do what's called time boxing. And this has been used in thousands of studies now have shown this technique to be incredibly effective. And the reason this is so important is twofold. One, for the first time, you will have an artifact. You will have a physical representation of your values. And this isn't complex stuff. This takes about 15 minutes to do. And I'll give you a link, Eric, in the show notes. I built this free tool online. You don't have to sign up for anything. You don't have to pay anything. It's totally free that anyone can use to make one of these time box calendars. And what you will have is you will have a representation of how you have turned your values into time. And I show you exactly how to do this step by step. Once you have that manifestation of that physical artifact of this, these are my values based on how I want to spend my time. I'm not just going to talk a good game, but here is how I'm going to invest in time in these things that are important to me. You can, for the first time, look at that calendar and know the difference between what is traction for every minute of your day and everything else, even the stuff that you thought is productive, like checking email when you really should be working on the big project, all that stuff is instantly distraction. So that's one important reason to do this. The second important reason is that now you can start sharing that, that time box calendar with the stakeholders in your life. So in my life, I have a 15 minute, what's called a schedule sync with my wife. We've been married for 18 years. This saved our marriage. I can't tell you how much better it's made our relationship now that we have this, this weekly check-in. It's something you can do with your boss. 
you know, what we find is that 15 minutes of simply showing your calendar to your boss and doing what's called a schedule sync, when you show your manager, hey, this is what I'm gonna do this week. Okay, you see all these boxes, see how much time I'm spending on all these priorities. Now you see this other list over here? Here's the things that you asked me to do that I just couldn't find time to put in my schedule for the week ahead. Can you help me reprioritize? You know, one of the tropes that we hear all the time that drives me crazy is if you want to learn how to be more focused and productive, learn how to say no to people. Give me a break. Who's gonna look at their boss in the eye, the, per the person who signs their checks and say no? You'll get fired, that's ridiculous. Instead, what you wanna do is sit down with your boss for 15 minutes, do this schedule sync, and I promise you, they will worship the ground you walk on. It's one of the most important and effective things you can do to increase your productivity and your well-being day in and day out. So that's step two. Step three is about hacking back the external triggers. And I use the term hack back because we know that to hack in computer hacker parlance is about gaining unauthorized access into something. And it is no secret that you know, many companies out there uh, hack your attention. They want to gain unauthorized access to your attention, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or the New York Times, the, the Vox, they're all in the same business. They sell your eyeballs and your attention to advertisers, none of them are not guilty of this. It's all their business models. So we have to take steps to hack back. And I believe that we are actually much, much more powerful than they are. And I'll prove it to you. Two thirds of people with a smartphone never change their notification settings. What the hell? <laughs> Can we seriously sit here and say the technology is hijacking our brains when two thirds of people haven't taken five minutes to turn off their notification settings? This is kindergarten stuff. So of course I tell you how to do that, how to make an indistractable smartphone, how to make an indistractable desktop. But I also go into some of the less obvious forms of distraction. For example, the number one source of distraction in the modern American workplace, according to several surveys, 80% of respondents say the number one source of distraction is not their computers, it's not their phones, it's other people. So what do we do about that? How, what do we, if you work in an open floor plan office, that's not going anywhere. You know, companies say it's about increasing creativity and having people share ideas. No, let me tell you what it's for. It's to help them save money on real estate costs. But it's not going anywhere, right? Every startup is an open, uh, open floor plan office. That's not going anywhere. What we can do is to take steps to hack back distraction. I show you exactly how to do that. Uh, and then I talk about how to hack back meetings, how to hack back email. I'll show you to reduce the time you spend on email by up to 90%. Huge potential sources of distraction that we tackle one by one in that section of the book. Then the fourth and final section is about how to prevent distraction with pacts. And pacts are the last resort. It's the last thing we do to make sure we don't get distracted. In this, in this instance, we use what's called a pre-commitment device. Again, this has been studied in thousands of, of, of experiments. And psychologists have shown that by deciding in advance what commitment you are going to make, this is a highly effective technique. It's actually been shown to be one of the most effective ways to help people quit smoking. Uh, and it's very effective in terms of blocking out distraction. So there are three types of pre-commitments, an effort pact, a price pact, and an identity pact. And I show you how you can use these three packs in your own life as the, the, the fail safe, the last resort of what to do in terms of becoming indistractable. And so that's about, that covers about half the book is really about what you can do. The second half of the book is about how to build an indistractable workplace because, you know, I'll admit I can teach you how to become indistractable, but if your workplace culture is one that perpetuates being always on, uh, then what do you do then? Well, well, we can dive into some of the techniques and, and what the real source of the problem is. Some fascinating research I conducted with companies like Boston Consulting Group and Slack and what they do about this problem. 
And then there's a whole section about how to raise indistractable kids, which I think is the most important chapter of the entire book, because it's about our, our future. It's about our children. It's about how, uh, you know, if you think the world is distracting now, just wait a few years. It's only going to become more distracting for the world our kids inherit. Uh, so it's in, in, incredibly important that we teach them how to become indistractable. And then finally, how do we have indistractable relationships? I, I take you inside my bedroom and we talk about how to make sure that we can uh, have indistractable relationships with the people who matter most in our lives. There's a, a lot of branching off of points. Uh, so on the, on the kids front, you know, it, it, I think I have to do uh, some, some credence to some, some uh, you know, one of the major critiques I, I, I heard in the Ezra Klein podcast that, that you did with them. I, one question I would ask you basically is, you know, is there a world in the future that social media is is seen to what what cigarettes were, were seen to? You know, thirty years from now, fifty years from now, and what would need to be true for you to think? Oh, yeah, that actually that that might happen uh, if if you don't think it now. Well, I, you know, I used to say that. Um... Uh, technology is a cigarette of the century. And I didn't make that up. That was a, a quote uh, that, that's been floating around the internet for a while now. Um, and I don't say that anymore um, because technology is, is not like cigarettes uh, in, in terms of the, the, what, the, what cigarettes are, right? Cigarettes addict people because there's this chemical, uh, nicotine, which uh, has these, the theory is has these chemical hooks. But remember, we're not freebasing Facebook. We're not injecting Instagram. We're not snoring Snapchat. That's ridiculous, right? If anything, these are behaviors and behaviors can be changed much more easily than these chemical addictions. Now we say, well, but what about gambling, right? Isn't that a behavior? Well, yeah, but look at the statistics of who actually gets addicted. You know, many of us have been to Las Vegas and have played slot machines on a bachelor or bachelorette party we don't all get addicted, and we know this to be common sense. Let's go back to the more extreme version. Let's go to, to alcohol. You know, alcohol is highly addictive, but not everyone who has a glass of wine with dinner is an alcoholic. Very few people are actually alcoholics. And so why do we think that the technology is somehow different? Do some people get addicted to technology? Absolutely, because people get addicted to all sorts of things when there is something deeper going on. An addiction is always an escape from an uncomfortable reality in a condition where someone can't easily stop. It's not just a distraction, it's an addiction. But the rest of us, you know, we like to pathologize these problems. We love to call them addictions. Why? And of course, the media loves to do this because it generates a ton of clicks for these, for these publications. We love these headlines that tell us we're getting addicted because when something is an addiction, there's a dealer, there's a pusher, there's someone doing it to us. But, you know, if we call it what it really is, a distraction, oh, crap, now, now, it's my fault. Now I can do something about this. Now this is my responsibility. And so we don't like to call it that, but that's exactly what it is. That for the vast majority of us, save the people who are actually pathologically addicted, which there are some people who are pathologically addicted, for the vast majority of us, it is not an addiction. It's nothing more than a distraction. The one way I do think that technology is similar to cigarettes is actually uh, there, there's, a very, there, there's a positive ending, I think, or a positive example, I should say, uh, from, from the story of cigarettes. You know, we, we went from uh, about 40% of the adult population smoking to today it's under 14%. Soon it'll be under 10% in the next few years, according to the CDC. And part of what, what happened was a seismic change in terms of spreading what Paul Graham calls social antibodies. And so let, let me illustrate what happened. So I grew up in the early 80s, and I was born in the 70s. And I remember in the early 80s, in my household, um, my parents didn't smoke. And yet we had ashtrays in our living room. 
almost every home in America, whether you, whether you smoked or not, you had ashtrays. Everybody had them. And we had these ashtrays in our living room because when people came over, they just expected to smoke. It was just something they did. And it was rude, in fact, back then to not have ashtrays available until people started changing their behaviors. They started changing their, their they started spreading these social antibodies. And so my mom, not, you know, being a non-smoker, one day she said to a person who came over, she took the ashtrays away and she said, oh, I'm sorry, we are non-smokers. If you'd like to smoke, would you be so kind as to go outside? And she had to kind of go out on a ledge there. That was considered pretty rude to ask someone to go outside at the time. And of course, you know, if, if you're a millennial, this sounds crazy. <laughs> if you were born after 1985, like you don't understand this world, it, it doesn't make any sense because today, you know, that would be incredibly rude to just light up a cigarette in someone's home. That would be unheard of. Uh, and yet that's what people did back then. So what changed? Was there a law that says you can't smoke in someone's private residence? Of course not. There's never been a law that says that. What changed is that people took heed of the evidence that, you know, smoking isn't good for you. And they did something about it by changing their self-image. They called themselves a different moniker. And I think we can all do this with technology that we can call ourselves indistractable. That's why the book is titled what it is. We can all decide to become indistractable and spread these social antibodies. Now, the difference between a cigarette and technology is that there's nothing good about ingesting nicotine, right? There's nothing, or, you know, very little, I should say. Uh, some people say, you know, that you can get some benefits, but that's a whole nother topic. Um, you know, there, at least we can all agree that burning tobacco leaves is, is very little good about it. But of course, we can't make that kind of black and white distinction when it comes to technology. We don't want to stop using these technologies. They're wonderful, right? They're, 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 they're a beautiful thing that can be used responsibly in a way that really does enhance our lives. But what we can do is to create new norms, new manners, new standards about how we can use these technologies. And we already see that happening, right? We, we're younger people. You know, I used to teach at Stanford for many years. And it's interesting. The younger people don't have this problem. Like they have already spread these social antibodies that when we're together, when we want to talk to each other, man, it's really rude if you check your phone. They know this. You know where I see people being rude to each other? It's the older folks. It's when I go to give a workshop or, or facilitate a meeting and the big boss is in the room and the boss sends a message to all the employees in the room that I'm so important, I have to check email all the time and you people standing in this room, you're much less important than what's on my phone right now. That's who I see hasn't gotten the message around these social antibodies. And I tell you how to deal with that and how to, how to spread these social antibodies. But I, I'm very optimistic. If we, if, we, if we kick the smoking habit societally, uh, it's clearly on the way out. I think we can absolutely do the same thing when it comes to our distractions. There was this, um, I read somewhere that uh, social media usage will become similar to a sugar usage in that it'll, um, in that the classes will be divided. Basically, uh, you know, healthy people, uh, fit people and unfit people is, is somewhat divided by class. And in the future, uh, you know, rich people will have tools and systems and processes not to using social media or not to be uh, quote unquote addicted to it. And uh, the, the less fortunate people might not have the, the same resources and will be, will be more addicted. That's just all a, a segue into, uh, into um, say more about what indistractable kids uh, will look like. Is, is it just um, you know, not introducing it to a certain age or, or, or say more about that. Obviously you get into it in the book. Yeah. So, uh, you know, unlike with food where it's about high, you know, buying organic food, which costs more or hiring a personal trainer, which is expensive. 
you know, all this costs is a copy of my $16 book, <laughs> right? And this isn't very expensive. You can use these techniques. Uh, the techniques I describe, anyone can do. It doesn't matter how much money you have. The technology, even, you know, part of what I talk about in the book is how you can actually use technology to prevent technology distraction. And many of these tools, you know, we forget there's been an explosion. I know you know many of these companies. I think you've actually invested in a few of them. Uh, these companies that help us focus and, and many of these tools are totally free or very inexpensive, 99 cent apps kind of, kind of stuff. Uh, the amount of money that people spend on, on all kinds of potential distractions like you know, sports jerseys and t-shirts and, and all kinds of other stuff, if they took a fraction of that and knew how to spend that money towards ways to, to help them become more focused, this does not cost a lot of money, unlike, unlike when it comes to, to uh, improving your, your diet. And then when it comes to indistractable kids, I think this is a really, really important discussion. Um, because, you know, let me back up for a second. I think there's a lot of very low hanging fruit here, right? So some very easy things that I can advise every parent is number one, don't let your kid use the technology before the maker says that, that they should, right? So, you know, when I hear a 10 year old is on Facebook, I, I have to scratch my head and wonder why, right? The Facebook tells you, do not let anyone you under 13 use this product. Why the heck would you let a 10 year old use a product that the maker says don't let them use before a certain age. So I think that's common sense stuff. I actually think that there's no reason for kids to get on to social media well into high school, maybe even to college. I think you know middle school is, is rough enough without uh, the, these technologies. So there's no reason to, to give these tools too early. Uh, and at the end of the day, look, we as parents pay for these things. Uh, so I think we do have more power than we think. And I oftentimes hear, well, what about all their friends? Are you? Oh, okay, yeah, but so what? What's going to happen? Are they going to melt if they don't have access to these tools until well into high school or maybe even college? No, nothing's going to happen to them. Uh, we, we can actually uh, be much more proactive about taking steps to make sure that, that our kids uh, can live the kind of lives they want by becoming indistractable. But this starts with a conversation. What we find is that the, the parents who are very heavy handed, right? If you type in on YouTube, uh, you know, parent taking away technology, you'll see these horrible videos of parents going into their kid's room and taking their cell phones and smashing it with the baseball bat or whatever. And that's, that obviously doesn't work because look, the fact of the matter is we are not raising kids. We are raising future adults. And so we have to involve them in the conversation here uh, to make sure that they, they achieve this life skill of becoming indistractable. That, you know, if, if when you come down very heavy handed with, with uh, restricting technologies, what you're basically doing is raise, raising a bunch of cheaters. They will find ways to use the technology, whether you like it or not, unless you understand why they are overusing technology. And that is the problem. The problem is not the technology. The problem is the overuse of technology. And it's not just me who's saying this. You know, studies have found that there's a U-shape that too little tech use and too much tech use has some deleterious effects, but there's a sweet spot that two hours or less of age-appropriate content has been shown to have zero deleterious effects. Zero! So we don't need to worry about two hours or less of age-appropriate screen time. What we need to worry about is the kids who are using way too much screen time, five, six hours a day. But, you know, of course, if, if, my, if your kid is reading Harry Potter for five, six hours a day, that's probably a signal of something else going on. So what's going on? Let, let's address the deeper issue here. What's really going on is that our kids are deficient in what we call psychological nutrients. And this isn't my theory, this is a 40-year-old theory called self-determination theory. Every psychologist on the face of the earth knows this theory, it's the most widely accepted theory of human motivation and flourishing by Desi and Ryan. 
And Desi and Ryan say that every human being on the face of the earth needs three things for psychological well-being. They need competency, autonomy, and relatedness. But when you look at kids' lives today, they are deficient in these three critical factors. It's just like saying, you know, if you, if you don't have the three macronutrients for our body of carbohydrates, protein, and fat, you starve. And our kids are psychologically starving right now. And so what do they do when they starve in the online, uh, offline world? They look for nourishment online. And let me prove my point. When you think about competency, something that has occurred uh, simultaneously with the, the increased proliferation of technology is the rise of standardized testing that around 2006, 2007, 2008, we have the dawn of no child left behind and teaching towards the test. And in many parts of this country, children starting in kindergarten are repeatedly uh, subjected to these standardized tests two, three, four times a year starting in kindergarten. And so we have a subset of children who are constantly told they are not competent. And we know that this is necessary for psychological well-being. So if you don't feel competent in the real world, you look for that sense of competency in the virtual world. And so you play Minecraft and you feel competent. You feel like you're in charge. You feel like a god. That feels good. Now let's think about autonomy. We know that this is the most regulated generation in history, that children today have 10 times as many restrictions as an average adult, twice as many restrictions as an incarcerated felon. There are only two places in society where we can tell people where to go, what to think, what to eat, what to wear, and that's school and prison. So is it any surprise when they come home, they want freedom, they want autonomy, and where previous generations like ours, you know, we would go outside, we would hang out, we wouldn't constantly be monitored and be told what to do all day. These kids don't have that. And so that leads to the third uh, pillar of psychological well-being, relatedness. You see, if you have means these days, Parents are so freaked out about getting their kids into top colleges that if you have money, you put your kids into test prep and Mandarin and swimming and soccer. And kids today, we are at a record low of the amount of time that kids have for what we call free play. You know, the, the, the neighborhoods of this country used to sing with the sound of children playing, and you don't hear that anymore. Because our kids are confined either indoors. If you don't have money, you keep your kid indoor because the media has told us stranger danger and that you know, kids can be abducted, which is totally not true. This is the safest time in history to be a child in this country. Or if you have money, you're, you're so paranoid about your kid's college that you, you do nothing but send them to program after program after program after school, and they have no time for the most important thing you can do for your kid's psychological well-being, which is to let them play with their peers. This is why we have such a fragile generation today, is because they haven't had that experience of playing and being told, you know what, chill out, you're not very nice to me right now. If you're not nice to me, I'm not gonna be nice to you. Hearing that from a peer is much more important than hearing it from an adult or a teacher or a coach. And so what do kids do when they don't get enough of this nourishment, of this sense of relatedness? Well, TikTok and Instagram and Snapchat give them what they are missing. And so if we don't understand these deeper reasons why kids overuse technology, we're just scratching the surface. This is just, you know, overuse of technology is the symptom of the more important dysfunction. And then the one last thing I would say is that, you know, many times when it comes to technology, people think about it like it exists in a vacuum. And we don't, we don't understand what would happen had we not had these tools. So one of the, th one of the stories that is all too seldomly told is what's happened to this generation around 2007, 2008, since we got the iPhone, 
this is the safest generation in history. You know, this was supposed to be the generation. I don't know if you remember this. You know, this was the generation of the super predator. These, this generation right now was supposed to be the ones that were going to terrorize everybody. And, you know, the, the, and we took action on this several decades ago. We built prisons to house this generation of kids who were all supposed to terrorize us. Well, that never happened. It never happened. If you look at all the things that harm kids, uh, with the exception of self-harm and suicide, which we can talk about what's going on there in a minute, if you look, think about drug use, record lows, truancy, record lows, teen pregnancy, record lows, drunk driving, record lows, all of these things that used to kill kids are at record lows. So maybe, just maybe, if you wanted to invent a device to keep kids safe off the streets, off the roads, maybe you might invent a device like these computers that we carry around in our pocket today, like these video games. Maybe there's also an upside. But of course, you don't hear that because that doesn't make the headlines, right? That doesn't get clicks on stories. Uh, totally. So uh, what is happening on the, on, on the suicide front? Why, why is that happening? Yeah. So if we're going to look at the suicide statistics among teens, and we're going to you know what a lot of folks, uh, not a lot, but a few folks will do, is to say, look, you know, teen suicide went up around the same time that uh, smartphone use uh, went up. So there we go. Correlation equals causation. But of course, that's the first rule of scientific experimentation. We have to see what else is going on. Uh, and once you start looking deeper into the data, you find that there's a lot of chinks in this armor that, uh, for one, if it was really about the phones, you would expect teen suicide to increase everywhere. Everywhere that has phones should see a rise in teen suicide. That ain't so. It's only happening in two countries, the US and the UK. All the other countries that have had cell phones even longer than we have. You know, the Japanese have had smartphones longer than we have. The Nordic countries have had smartphones long, longer than we have. No rise in teen suicide. In fact, a drop in teen suicide. Even in America, we only see a rise in teen suicide in one place, rural America, Trump country. We do not see a rise in urban areas. That makes no sense. The urban kids actually have used cell phones more than the urban kids or than the suburban kids. And yet in these rural areas, that is where you see a rise in teen suicide. We don't know why, but it's not, it can't be correlated with, with it can't be caused by uh, cell phone use because it's not evenly distributed. It doesn't make sense. There's something else going on. And so we have to be very, uh, very cautious about jumping to these conclusions that of course, correlation does not equal causation. We were talking earlier about uh, time and time usage and, and the need to schedule unscheduled time. You know, there, there's also a popular strain of thinking of, you know, hey, Warren Buffett doesn't, uh, doesn't take meetings. Mark Andreessen doesn't take meetings. Uh, they sort of leave their time unscheduled so they can focus on, on the most important things um, that they, they decide and then uh, as, they, as they come up. Would you, would you not recommend this approach for, for most people if, if, they can, if, if they can do it? Well, I would argue that actually what Warren Buffett and Mark Andreessen are doing are they, are they are scheduling their day just very differently from how everyone else does. Warren Buffett has scheduled reading <laughs> for his entire day. And if something comes up that's more important than that, then he will change his schedule accordingly. Uh, because that is his main objective is to absorb information. And if you have that luxury, if that's what you want to do, that's great if you can block your time in that, in that fashion. For the vast majority of us, uh, that just won't work, right? We have our kids to take to soccer practice. We have our, uh, our, our, our uh, jobs to look after. We have meetings to attend. We have emails to answer. Uh, we, we can't, if we want to do those things, 
then we can't just expect them to fall into place. Uh, if you have one big objective like Warren Buffett does, then that's great. Basically, you've scheduled your whole day to do that one objective. That's what he's done. But for the rest of us, if you have lots of things on your to-do list and you find that day after day, you're not able to do what you said you're going to do, well, then clearly something's not working. And what I would argue is not working is that you haven't turned those tasks and your values into time. The... Um uh, you mentioned that one of the things you enjoyed in this book was uh, debunking popular sort of shibboleths uh, in, 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 in popular psychology or, or finding ones that, that were debunked. W what's another one that you found that, w that, w that was debunked that maybe people might not fully appreciate or, or maybe one that you uh, think might be debunked in, uh, in the next 10 years or so? Well, I think that the, the, uh, the most relevant today is that it has to do with self-image. Uh, specifically around what addiction is and isn't. And we talked about that a little bit briefly uh, about, about that perception of, you know, that, that technology is mind control and that these things make us do things we don't want to do. And I think that that will, in a few years' time, uh, be seen as kind of a ridiculous overreaction, another moral panic, which, by the way, the, the historical record shows every time a new technology um, gains popular adoption, people freak out. Everybody agrees it's the worst thing ever. It happened with the television, it happened with the radio, it happened with the comic books. Like if you listen to the testimony uh, of Tristan Harris in front of, of Congress talking about how technology is, is uh, this race to the bottom of the brainstem, it sounds really good, but it is almost verbatim what people said in front of Congress about comic books, like almost word for word. That it's just very simplistic. I don't believe that we are uh, being controlled by these devices. Some people do suffer from pathological addictions. That is real, but that's a very small percentage of people. The vast majority of us can absolutely do something about this problem. And so that's the biggest myth I want to overturn is this idea that we lack agency, that we can't do anything about this problem. I think that is clearly untrue. And is that the crux of where you interest and disagree? Like, is, what, what's the assumption which you disagree basically with that people do or do not have the, the power to overcome? these tools? Right. So I think Tristan starts with let's regulate first. Uh, let's get these companies to change first. Uh, and I say, you know, look, there might be room for regulation, but why would we wait? Right. There's so much that we can do right now uh, as, as users of these products today to become indistractable. Why would we wait? Uh, we, we're going to let the geniuses in Washington regulate this problem away. We know that there's a pretty bad track record of, of that happening. And look, one thing that's never going to be regulated away is companies making products that are engaging. We don't want them to stop doing that. Do we, should we tell Netflix, stop making interesting shows? They're too good, I wanna watch them. Should we tell Facebook, please make your products less user-friendly? Apple, you know, your, your iPhones are really user-friendly. Please stop that. I wanna use my iPhone all the time. No, that's not a problem, that's progress. We want these products to be engaging. And so I think the only solution can, can be to make sure that we define for ourselves what is traction and what is distraction in our lives. That's how we become indistractable. Do you imagine uh, tech, uh, startups that help us uh, be fo get focused or limit our technology usage being big companies? Sure. I've invested, actually. I put my money where my mouth is. So there's several companies I invested in. Um, and I, you know, one of them is, is uh, Focusmate as a company I invested in that does something very, uh, very in, or, uh, in line with my philosophy of becoming indistractable. 
And there are many, many other tools. I mean, there's an explosion of, of companies out there. If you just check the app store, uh, I mean, even, even Apple and Google are getting into the game of making features inside their products that help people use the products in a, in a more mindful, healthful way. And I think that's fantastic. I think we, need to, we have to give these companies credit for doing this. Uh, you know, I think the narrative these days that it's, is, is promoted is, is so cynical. I mean, these companies can't do anything right. If you listen to Kara Swisher and, and, and Tristan Harris, there's nothing these companies can do right. And that's not fair. They are working very hard to find ways to help us use these technologies in a more healthful way. And, you know, for the rest of us, for the entrepreneurs listening, we shouldn't be discouraged by using behavioral design for good. You know, I've worked with thousands of companies and, and let me tell you, every single one of them, every single company I've worked with is using behavioral design to help people live better lives. So it's wonderful to get people hooked to exercising in the gym like Fitbod does or getting kids hooked to learning in the classroom like Kahoot does, one of my portfolio companies. Uh, I've worked with the New York Times to get people hooked to reading the news. That's actually one of the companies I regret working with, <laughs> to be honest, because I think they don't, they're, they're, sometimes their motives aren't pure in terms of, you know, they, they hide the motives of, of wanting people to keep clicking and clicking, not necessarily for their advantage. But, you know, we can clearly use these techniques for good. And the vast majority of companies out there are using behavioral design tactics to help people learn languages and, and uh, improve their health and well-being, be closer connected to family. That, that's great stuff. We don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. These techniques, we, we should be using these techniques more, not less. With one minute remaining, uh, your, your, your quick one-sentence answer to, to two questions. One is, what is the, the root for, of, the, of the tech lash, in your opinion? Why is Kyra Swisher so much more negative than she was five years ago and, and her ilk? And then two, uh, what's, what's the next book? <laughs> um, so I'll answer the second one first. I have no idea what the next book is. I'm, I'll, I'll figure that out in the next few years. Maybe I'm really passionate about What's that? Maybe it's the tech lash itself. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. But I think, you know, the, the reason we have to, we have to understand that the media, uh, is in the exact same business as Facebook. Again, they are monetizing your attention. They sell your ad, your eyeballs, uh, to ad buyers. That's what the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and every podcast out there, maybe, you know, that has ads, maybe not yours. Thank goodness for podcasts like yours, where you can tell the whole story as opposed to just needing a, a headline, uh, a clickbaity headline, like, like many uh, publications have. But, you know, that's one reason. The business model, we have to remember, is the same business model, that people want to click on things that are, you know, uh, are inflammatory and scary. That ga gathers a lot more clicks uh, than, than balance, frankly. Uh, and the second thing is that, you know, humans are hardwired with what's called a negativity bias, that we are always on the lookout for something that can harm us. And so it's very easy for us to whip ourselves up into these moral panics. Uh, and, and that's what, what we're seeing today. And then finally, you know, let's be honest, the tech industry has screwed up in many ways. I'm not a tech apologist. I'm not saying that the tech industry have done everything right. When it comes to uh, uh, privacy concerns, when it comes to election meddling, when it comes to uh, monopoly status of these companies, these companies have a lot to account for. So I'm not letting them off the hook. But I think you know, many of those mistakes have, have turned us from skepticism, which I think is a very healthy Silicon Valley value, to now cynicism where now they can do nothing right. And I think now it, the, the tech lash has sung, swung so far that we can't see reality for what it really is, that it's complicated, that there's nuance here. But of course, that's not the way the story tends to get told. The story tends to get told in black and white broad strokes, which aren't real. Totally, that's a great place to, to wrap. My guest uh, today has been Nir Ayal. The book is indistractable. Uh, Nir, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure, Eric, thanks for having me. 
you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.